we have opportunities all through our lives. When significant events come, we have rituals to acknowledge those things. At loss, if we don't, how do we re-enter anew as in acknowledging this change? The Shepherd in the Shrink podcast can only happen with your support. Please go to patreon.com, search for the Shepherd in the Shrink podcast, and find all kinds of cool stuff that we have in store for you. You can build the heart of a lion with a strong mind and spirit, because a lion's natural state is one of safety through courage, strength, and power. Hi, I'm the shepherd and pastor, Dr. Matt Hook. And I'm the shrink, Dr. Marty Fletcher. This is the show where theology meets psychology. Or mental health meets spirituality. Welcome to the Shepherd and the Shrink podcast. Well, good afternoon, Marty Fletcher, the shrink. Good afternoon, Matt Hook, the shepherd. And I want to welcome our special guest today, who is Carl Jennings. And we were trying to make a joke. Carl is actually the owner and one of the leaders of Bork Jennings Funeral Homes. And what's the name of your other company that you have? Well, we have a couple. We have a training company called the Acute Loss Center. And then we just recently started up a company called My Funeral Friend. The Acute Loss Center is what I'm really excited for us to talk about. But we were trying to make a joke like the shepherd, the shrink, and we we're trying to think of a show word. And the only one we could come up with was the shoveler. Oh, oh, man. <laughs> and it's been a lot of years since I had a shovel in my hand, I can tell you. I'm sure. I'm really. And it was uh, that one trip up north many, many years ago when I was like 25. We had a burial in Paradise, Michigan at a cemetery that didn't have a, hadn't had a burial for seven years. And I couldn't find someone to dig the grave. And I won't go into great detail, except to say, when I got there, I had a shovel with me just in case. <laughs> <laughs> so fortunately, uh, a 12 pack and a hundred bucks satisfied somebody. So we let them uh, take care of it. <laughs> it's all so, about the practical stuff. Yeah, exactly. Well, one of the things that has been really, really cool, and Carl's an old friend, and uh, something that he drew on a napkin for me about 18 years ago, had to do with how to help understand what goes on when we hear about the loss of somebody's life, or when we hear about a loved one, or when we hear about a friend who lost a parent, or a grandparent, or any kind of loss. And Carl has studied this such that he has really been able to impact the whole industry of funeral homes and anyone who is dealing with people who have lost loved ones who have died. And Marty and I talked last week in our last session about the theology and the psychology of what this looks like about death and dying and, and how do we see ourselves through that. And there's so much to talk about that we really wanted to make this a part two and to get Carl in here. So Carl, welcome to the podcast, The Shepherd and the Shrink. I'm excited to be here. It is so good to have you here and wanted to talk about what happened in your story that made you realize, you know, there was something that an entire industry could learn about in helping process death and dying for people. I come from a uh, what would be a first-generation perspective in funeral service. Uh, my family didn't own funeral homes, 
And I um, really was trying to determine what I was going to do with my life when I was at Adrian College. And the young woman I was dating at the time told me I ought to meet her uncle. And I said, well, why do you want me to do that? And so well, I think he'd be really good at what he does. And I'm like, so what does he do? And she said, he's a funeral director. Oh, I thought you were going to say he was a cover model. <laughs> <laughs> Had a better shot at that back then than now, for sure. But uh, anyway, the upside of it was, I, I mean, I long hair. I don't remember last time I had a suit on at that time in my life. And and I'm I'm like, you know, what in the world do you see in me that would, you know, say funeral director, right? Because I had that sort of the same outside impression I think everybody does, you know, who would want to work with the dead every day of their lives. Anyway, I shadowed her uncle for a little while, got to understand it. And he was a, he was a believer and he really saw it as a ministry and helping people at one of the most challenging times of their lives. So that's how I was introduced to it, that it was a way of, of helping people at a difficult time in their life. And I decided I was going to go to mortuary school. My next family gathering I went to, I was really excited to share it with my grandpa because I was fortunate enough to have one of those E.F. Hutton grandpas. You know, our generation would know what that means, but basically an old commercial that said when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. I said, hey, grandpa, guess what? I decided what I'm going to do. I'm going to become a funeral director. And I can't say exactly what he said <laughs> after that, but it was why the mm, would you want to do that? And I said, because I want to help people at one of the most difficult times in their lives. And he said, well, I just want you to know that the money that I've spent on my parents' funeral was the worst money I've ever spent in my life. And that was my first indication that there was a underlying sort of question in the value of traditional funerals and funeral service and maybe my first customer survey, unsolicited customer survey, right? And so I went to mortuary school with the intent of figuring out how do you help people at a difficult time in their life. And about halfway through school, I went to the program director and said, okay, so I've learned a lot of stuff here, but nothing about how to help people. And when will that happen? She said, your apprenticeship. Then I went to my apprenticeship to learn a lot of things, but never anything to really related to any kind of model and understanding of people in early loss and how we could help help them beyond just uh, effectively taking an order for what it is they wanted. Really no clear understanding of what, of how to help them with the things they needed. And so that, to be honest with you, was uh, at that time in my life, especially in school, was really discouraging because I, I thought I would learn how to help people. And in fact, what I learned in school really seemed to be just a huge gap between where I, what I perceived we should be doing and what I thought the industry was teaching us. So that's sort of where it began. Wow. Wow. You know, it's funny because you went into that business to try to help people. Marty opened a practice to try to help people. I went into pastoral ministry to try to help people. It's right. kind of wild to look at it from that angle. And then when anybody asks you, what is it that you do for a living? Oh, that has to go over <laughs> really well. <laughs> I tell you, we all have a unique perch in life because when you say, well, I'm a pastor, you know a lot about the person immediately by the response. Oh, yeah. If you say, I'm a psychologist, you know a lot about the person. Yeah. Is that right, Marty? <laughs> true. Yes, that's very true. 
Well, you know everything you need to know about someone's understanding of mortality pretty quickly <laughs> when you say, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a funeral director. You get the, oh, well, I guess someone's got to do it. Yeah. Or you hear about their most recent death experience, which is actually a great opportunity because it gives you a chance to talk in a meaningful way. But uh, mm -hmm. anyway, so we do have that in common as well, I think. That's really funny. Well, Marty, there's a ton about psychology of death and dying. How much study have you read about the psychology of how to help those people who have lost someone to death and dying? Oh, we know a lot about grief, beginning with Kubler-Ross's work. I think that was in the 70s, right? Um, and so we, we've developed a, a lot about grief and what the process is like, but as a psychologist, like mine is like intra and interpersonal and what Carl's dealing with, it, it's bigger than that. You know, it's about relationships and community. And, you know, I hope you can talk a little bit about symbolism and why some of these things are done and how that that can give meaning, right? To the life and the death and the loss. Well, I think what Kuba Ross did is she gave us a first language for grief. And I feel like what we're trying to do with the acute loss period is give people a first language for loss. You know, grief happens because of loss. And I think sometimes while it can be a bit of a semantic game, there really is a, an experience that's specific to loss. And uh, Kubler-Ross's work having to do with both, you know, dealing with patients that were dying and the terminally ill and, and sort of the work that she was doing around that led her to a, a certain process, a group of stages, right? And that are descriptive, no question. But we've always struggled with the first language of loss because usually that language was found around religious rituals. There wasn't really a therapeutic model that was developed from it. So does that make sense? It makes perfect sense to me. Okay. So I, I think the, the challenge that I had was I worked in Ann Arbor for the first eight years of my career. Ann Arbor always tends to be you know, out in front I think maybe that gap's closed a little bit with the, the advent of technology, but being an academic community, it tended to be um, maybe 10 to 15 years culturally ahead of the, you know, the surrounding area. And so I was able to see sort of um, the practices and, and, and or the challenges people were having around loss within that community before I moved outside of that community. And, and, um, and I began then to see it happen then. And, Here's two things I want to point out is there are two really significant, I would call them mega trends that have impacted people at the time of loss. Because everybody, when we have someone we love dies, needs emotional support. They need relational or social connection with others. And they will wrestle with spiritual questions, whether they're religious or not. They're going to ask the questions, where do I find my meaning and purpose in life? And <laughs> short of medicating and complete distraction, those questions will keep you up at night. Where is it that I find my meeting? What is the, are my values in my life aligned with the things that matter the most to me? But the two trends that I have seen that have been really complicated this process for people is the first, the change in family structure. I make a joke periodically, but I mean, years ago you could ask for obituary information and it was pretty linear. Grandparents, parents, children. Today, I'm almost afraid to ask the question because you're invariably opening up wounds and hurts, right? And so you find out that such and such divorce, such and such, they're not speaking to each other. 
and this person remarried. And then there's no judgment in, in any of that. It's just to say, it's sort of that foundational emotional support, relational support, which is the family structure. With divorce, uh, a statistic I remember is uh, 9% of all households in 1960 were single parent families. Today, between cohabitating parents and or single parents, it's near 35%. That just means that there's a turnover and an uncertainty in an insecurity, if you will, for many as to where will they find emotional support in their life and or relational support in that foundational unit. The second is really sort of around religious practices or specifically religious affiliation. And that is when our loss practices um, were primarily religious-based uh, rituals, well, when we have now upwards of 30% of the culture who is religiously unaffiliated, that means you have people walking in the door with no idea of really what to do because their practices of the past don't seem to apply or they're not even considering them. And so it's those two things that I see in the culture where people get their emotional, relational, and spiritual support that are in huge flux or transition. And they're trying to scramble to figure out what to replace past ritual with in, in, in our, our current times. The evolving of that is where I, I felt the gap in my own ability to communicate and educate people. And um, through a lot of study and through a lot of experience, finally came across the model that I think helps people understand from a more therapeutic perspective, sort of the process that people go through in early loss and how they can be intentional about how they choose to gather and connect with people, to reflect and to celebrate and to make the loss real in their life. And uh, Marty, I don't, I listened to the last podcast and, you know, you said you were with, you were with your dad yeah. when he died. Yeah. Um, and I heard you talk about both of your experiences of being with the dead when that has happened. And I've been in that place too. It's surreal. It's sacred. Yes. Good word. And it's a little scary even for some. Early on. First time, maybe. Second yeah. Time, maybe. Yep. I agree with all of that. Sacred is a great word. Yeah. I remember for me, the mystery of the, the notion of this was our temple and our spirit leaves the body. The first time I was with somebody that died, that was so incredibly obvious. We are not our bodies, right? And the part that lives on in people's lives, even though we miss that connection, the part of us that lives on in those we love has nothing to do with our body. It has to do with every, everything to do with the bonding, the love, the memories that we connect with that person and their ability to give and share life with us, right? Those things stay with us. So with that said, for those who don't participate in a time of seeing, I have seen through the years that when they're not present and they hear the news only, uh, you're familiar with how the brain works much more than I am. We have a neocortex, right? And then a more primitive part of our brain, the limbic, limbic part of our brain. When we hear the news, but we don't see the person, what I see people doing is rationalizing. They, they haven't yet internalized the loss and they find ways, they're looking for ways to try to make it real. And, and unfortunately for people, there aren't a lot of ways to do that outside of being present with the person. 
from my experience, there's lots of ways to do this, whether it's at a home with somebody or a hospice or a hospital, because as human beings, we're physical, we're emotional, you know, we have senses that inform instruct, and instruct us. There's part of us that needs to engage all of those and the reality of what's taking place in order to absorb it into ourselves. And I think a lot of people are fearful if they do that, that somehow they're going to be overwhelmed, but they're avoiding the very thing they need to do in order to be able to deal with their loss. I once had a, a mother say, well, I don't want my 12-year-old son to see their grandfather because it's going to make him cry. And I asked her the question, when was the last time you cried and you didn't feel better afterwards? I mean... <laughs> If you don't fight it, I always have to say that too, because sometimes people will be trying to control that. And that takes an enormous amount of muscular tension and, you know, you don't get the peace that comes, but if you just let it flow like that, you're exactly right. It's, it gives us some relief and it activates the parasympathetic nervous system, right? That's that rest, peace, digest. I'm safe, like a safe. And that's actually the first emotional need that we have is this sense of building anxiety because you know, you know this, everybody lives sort of on a spectrum of uh, emotional well-being, a sense of security, and or at the other end of the spectrum, a, a high sense of anxiety or fear. And at any time in our life, we might be floating back and forth across that spectrum. And then all of a sudden, death interrupts that. And depending on where it finds us on that spectrum, it can be uh, very upsetting, very distressing. And what we want to do is move back to that place where we feel secure or safe again. And when we push those emotions away, where we try to suppress it, what we're doing is we're feeding that, that sense of anxiety, that sense of fear, and we're draining ourselves of energy, trying to, to keep up with keeping that down. Yes. Leads me to a question. Um, Marty, how much anxiety is tied in with fear of death itself? Okay. I mean, you know, mileage varies on individuals or individual differences. But what I find is this. Most people don't fear death because they don't believe it's going to happen. Right. They just don't think it's going to happen to them. So they're not facing that anxiety, really. That's why that in the Christian practice of memento mori is very valuable. That's in some other traditions, too. Just remember your death. If we were to live today like it's our last day on Earth, we would get down to our core values. Hmm. That's how death and loss can be transformational, right? I like to say there's never, almost never greater clarity in your life in the hours and the days following a tragic loss of some sort. All of the superficial stuff yeah. pushes us to the side. You know, we had a, an incident about a week or so ago with a common friend where an emergency arose. And I want you to know my schedule was pummeled that day. I just, I didn't have time for anything. And when a friend was in distress and not, not even being absolutely certain what was going on, none of that mattered anymore. Everything all of a sudden was able to be put off. Optional. Right? right. Yeah. It was optional. Delayable. Oh my gosh. And so it's the same way in many ways that we just kind of run around in this gerbil wheel of life. Just keep going, keep going, keep yes. going. Death stops the wheel. We fall on our face. Yeah. We stand up and we go, what am I doing? Mm, and yeah. it really causes us to reflect, I think, on three things. It causes us to reflect on the life of the person we knew. Mm-hmm. We think of those things, you know, it is true when we die, we tend to look back on the 
person's life and all of the good things stand up. It is, it's just true. Yeah, that's a relief. <laughs> <laughs> I have hope. We have hope, right? But the good things stand up. And those good things are gifts. Those are gifts. And those gifts are given to us for the moment when they're not there. Hmm. And they form what we come to understand is their legacy in our lives. And here's the cool thing. Those gifts are not to be just planted with you, but then they're to be passed on to those you love. And that to me is such a huge component in the healing process because it takes this hard, difficult thing. It finds the good in it. And it says, I'm going to activate the good along with processing the loss. I always like to say funerals really have two faces. The sadness we feel because we lost someone we dearly loved, but we also have this joy inside because we shared love and life. Yeah. And they're integrated. Yeah, you've got to nurture both. Yeah, but right? they become integrated. Two two totally. poles come together and become integrated. Yeah, that's exactly true. I'm taking some liberties here, and I, please interrupt me if I uh, if you have a question. And I apologize, but the process of reflecting that first starts with the deceased, and we think about their life. The second thing is if it's not someone immediate to us, then we might begin to think about the family and who's going to be impacted by the loss and how we might need to support them. But the thing that's the great unspoken at funerals is that every person who's attending at some level is thinking, all right, someday I'm going to be the guest of honor. And what will they say about me? Yeah. Yeah. At a funeral or memorial service, the life of the person, the impact on the people who have survived their loss? And thirdly, what's my life story? Carl, could we say for number three, item three, um, what did my life mean? Does it get down to meaning? Like what was, what did my life really mean? What did, what did it mean that I was here? What effect did I have? I think whether we're conscious of that or subconscious of it, I think that's sort of an ongoing component of good mental health, right? I mean, because yes. we ultimately draw on our, our sense of purpose and meaning. I don't know about you, but to me, it's primarily in the tough times when life gets hard, when it's difficult. Those are sort of the anchors for me that pull me through the difficult times. And there's no doubt when I think about those who have gone before me and my family, and I remember their, their character, and I think, how would they react in this moment? Mm. I also think back and, and just say, for me, Am I living tr to my truest values? Am I I'm living to the things that I believe the most? None of us ever do that all the time. No, no right? No. Too hard. Matter of fact, most of us don't do it <laughs> as much as we <laughs> could. <laughs> probably think we probably we think we do, right? Right. We're showing a whole different set of values than what we think are really good ones. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the things that as Christians, at least for me because of the freedom that I have in Christ, I don't have, I don't want to hide from people. I want to be transparent because I think in being transparent, we don't have to have the facade of having it all together. I see that in people every single day at my work. It's, it is transparent that the wound that they're taking is disruptive to their life and they're trying to find a way to absorb it, to survive it, and then to reorient. And it's a vulnerable time. You know, it's just a vulnerable time. And 
I feel blessed to have done this for 40 years because it's just given me a different perspective of people uh, through that time. So, so you, you mentioned transformational grief. Okay. Can we talk about that for a second? Because um, something happened to me that was very transformational, but I wasn't aware of why it was happening. So I struggle with it. I'm getting closer to it, but you might be able to answer this for me. So quick background is, you know, I was thought I was, couldn't be taught, you know, so I never did well in school. I also had a lot of social anxiety, things like that, a lot of baggage and things like that. Okay. So by watching my sister die and the whole process of dying, not just the event at the very end, but the whole process of dying after that happened, there was deep grief, of course. Right. But all this anxiety went away. And I also had this strange experience of life for the first time, awareness of life. So I would even look at objects like trees and go, wow, I'm, I felt like I was looking at a tree for the first time. And so then what happened, the anxiety went away and I just started going to school. Cause I figured like, what the, what the heck, you know, like I had this freedom through that at the same time of, of grief. So that was a transformation sent me into, you know, school to, to get licensed as a psychologist. Eventually, how would you help me to, you know, evaluate that or interpret what happened to me? Well, I would say it's a catalyst for the work that was already beginning. Okay. Because I've seen people go the exact opposite way. <laughs> mm. Okay. Um, and so whether you were aware of it or not, if it was at your conscious mind or not, it was likely a catalyst. That's how I would say it to spur you towards something that was there that you had not yet grabbed a hold of. An example of others, I've, I've seen people go through loss a significant loss and two, two weeks later file for divorce, you know, in six months, lose 50 pounds, quit smoking. It's a catalyst for that underlying unresolved thing that's driving them. And sometimes that's a negative thing. And sometimes it's a positive thing, but it, it says, I'm going to maximize my potential. I'm going to, I'm going to tackle life. I'm not going to sit back and be passive with it, whatever it might be. So it, it probably, I, and I don't know, I'm just, I'm, I'm speculating based on sort of my experience, but for me, deep grief was a catalyst to, to resolve the way I would have said it back then was the pile of crap I'd been carrying around for a long, long time yeah. and wasn't willing to deal with until I was in enough pain to deal with it. Yeah. Dealing yeah. with it was transformative and made it, once I was free from that, I was able to take my whole self forward in a way that was no longer limiting or no longer a, a self-limiting, I should say, by my own ideas or behaviors. What about the ontological shift, like this just awareness of being? It's almost like I was sleepwalking before that. And I felt like I just woken up, you know, like I said, objects even seem to appear differently. I was paying attention to something. Yeah. Did you find any stories like that? Yes, the answer is, okay. you know, first of all, I'm to have the pleasure of knowing you, right? And so you're a serious thinker, you're a serious, somebody who has a bandwidth of observation that is incredible. And, and so from my own perspective, whether that had been unlocked yet or not, or right. if it had been freed, it, whatever was maybe keeping that from your, you know, full awareness of it, I don't know. But from that perspective, that doesn't surprise me. Are you speaking of the loss of your sister? Is yes. That, yes. Yeah. Okay. That's a pretty traumatic event. And I could see it either being both a catalyst in that way or 
knowing how knowing how deep you think about things, <laughs> giving you a sense of clarity. Yeah, that's how I felt a clearing. Yeah, that just made the what was there very obvious now for okay. you to go yeah, after. I, had, yeah. I really hadn't thought of that. That helps me a lot, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. I have a, a couple questions as we're talking about death and dying, just to bring it back to this specific time, because that's one of the big fears that I think every one of us has is when you hear about your own loved one, or you hear about somebody that you care about who's lost someone, what do I do? What do I say? Give me your top three things not to say. <laughs> I would rather just give you the things to say. Okay. <laughs> I'm uh, sure both. Oh, I, I've probably done them all too. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm sad with you. I mean, that's at, at, at the end of the day, you can't fake that for people. You know, I can't say I'm sad with you and not mean it. I really believe that anybody around somebody who's had a loss in their family is trying to figure out how to, what I call, appropriate their empathy, right? And so we do that every day. I mean, we, we get... Lots and lots of messages are appealing to our empathy. But when we hear somebody that we know has had a loved one that has died, almost immediately, we wonder, when am I going to see them again? Should I reach out to them? I want to make some kind of connection to them. And depending on what families choose related to services, et cetera, there may be a time and place to do that and or the time and place may be whenever they run into them next. But they've got this little mental marker in their head that says, Next time I see him, I got to say, I'm sorry to hear about your, your dad or your mom or your sister, whoever it might be. So those are things that are good to say. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I'm sad with you. I like that because you know what? That's the most important one. One guy, one of my friends, I was only 17. He just put his arm, his hand on my shoulder and yeah. I could, and I could feel it. I could see, I could yeah. sense it, that that was genuine. And I remember that to this day. That was, I think the single most important thing anyone did during that yeah. time. Wow. Human touch, human touch, huge. And with with the genuine, like you said, you can't fake it. I knew he was suffering with me yes. in that moment, at least. He was feeling for me. Mm -hmm. And so for most people, they need to have the question in their mind answered, what happened? We hear the news, but we don't know what happened. So if, if somebody had an unexpected death, you know, heart attack or whatever, and they there was no anticipation of it, well, then I have a different sense of, how I should apply my empathy and caring for that person. It doesn't mean that I don't reach out to him. It doesn't mean I don't speak to him. It just means that when I find out the story, I now know how to, to appropriate my empathy. So is it okay, it's just to put it in layman's terms. So is it okay? So, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry for your loss. I'm sad with you. Is it okay to say what happened? Sure, absolutely. Two stories people need to tell. The easiest one is, what happened? The second hardest one is, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. Right? Because that's in order to know how to connect with you empathetically, or that if you're open to that, mm -hmm. I have to ask, so how are you doing? If you're not comfortable asking, answering that question, you'll signal to me by saying, well, I'm doing okay. <laughs> and as a human, I know that's well, if you ever need anything, just don't hesitate to give me yeah, a call. And right? they never call. Right? right. And they never call. And, or they can say, you know what? This sucks. And now you're going to be one of the people they're going to choose to connect a little deeper with. But what you've done is you've cared enough to acknowledge the loss and you've invited yourself to share that loss by asking, how are they doing? Their choice then is to mm -hmm. include you in that or not to. Mm -hmm. And there is no judgment in this. Some people are able to, some people are not. Sure. 
So the idea is, okay, oh my gosh, somebody posts on Facebook their picture of their dad. First of all, oh, I'm so sorry for you to just simply acknowledge it yes. and not right. skirt around it or something right. like that. To be able to say, I, I just heard about your dad dying. Do you, do you say the word dying or passing? I would always acknowledge what it is, which is dying. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I just heard your dad died yeah. last week. So it's okay to say died. It's okay to acknowledge it because right. chances are they want to talk about it. Yes. If somebody gives them a window because yes. it's hard because it feels like the rest of the world's going on with life and you're yes. sitting there with this huge loss. So the first thing that I would say is, oh my gosh, I just heard your dad died. Is it okay? Suppose I haven't acknowledged the person or it's somebody I don't see on a regular basis. Is it okay a month later to call him and say, I am so sorry. I heard your dad died last month. Absolutely. It's never too late. No, it's not. Okay. And the truth is, it's going to happen. This is a difference between people who invite people intentionally, either through a gathering or whatever, versus those who are postponing and or choosing not to, is those who are immediate to the loss when there isn't a formal time of gathering and inviting people to join you will end up doing it individually wherever they live their lives in well, their that's sphere of influence. <laughs> that's why the ritual is important, right? To have a service or something. Exactly. It, it'll go on six to 12 months or until they closed all those loops. And so the, the challenge of that for families is, to be honest with you, you're in the grocery store, your friend hits aisle three, you hit aisle three. And as you're looking at your cereal, um, they walk up to you because they love you and care about you. And they want to get this mental marker removed from their brain. Mm -hmm. They're feeling guilty probably <laughs> if they went right. And they say, oh, I'm so sorry to hear about your dad. And you want to talk about that in the third aisle of the grocery store six months later, right? Well, you might, and you might not want to. But the truth is, is that for everybody who knows you and cares about you, they have that little mental marker and they're trying to find out are you going to give me permission to cross the barrier and, and to connect with you? Mm -hmm. And I tell you, that's the second need we have. It, they're connected, but I separate emotional needs because that has to do with more with security and, and a sense of well-being emotionally. The second need really is the uh, spectrum of between isolation and belonging. And there is nothing in my mind more powerful for families at the time of loss does a sense of feel a sense of connectedness and belonging within a family, within a community, et cetera. It's as if we're, we're sort of saying, while something significant has changed in your life, not everything has changed. And you're not going to face this loss and this grief alone. We're going to be here with you for the journey. The people that I get most troubled for that we serve are people who isolate themselves from the time the loss happens. Many never really re-enter socially their lives thereafter, especially older widows or widowers. And that's one of the reasons why we have widower, you know, grief groups and things like that, because we want to help facilitate connection. Mm -hmm. So when we think about emotional needs, it's really what are we going to do to nurture our, our sense of emotional well-being and security and anxiety? Relationally, it's isolation versus belonging. And then the last thing would be our spiritual needs, which has to do with our sense of hope and meaning, both in loss and life or a growing sense of hopelessness and despair mm -hmm. and as the opposite. And the thing is, life doesn't find us neutral on any of these. When death happens, it happens. 
It can push us in one direction or another. And ritual has always been there. The ritual of seeing, gathering, connecting, reflecting, and celebrating in some format has always been there to support the emotional, relational, and spiritual needs of people at the time of loss. And to, be pro- to sort of be proactive in the moment with that. Yeah. Carl, how important is public acknowledgement? What do you mean by that? I mean, people gather together for that purpose to acknowledge and mourn um, the loss and support. My opinion? Yes. It's the singularly most important. Okay, because I thought so. Yeah. Yeah. There are so many things that are going on for people at this time that are healthy for them, that give them an opportunity. But for instance, one of the big transitions is you have never spoken of your loved one in a past tense to anyone, right? And all of a sudden you're saying, well, my dad used to. Mm -hmm. Wow. My dad dad was. Um, the, the widower, the widower says my, my, my wife was, or my wife used to, and all of a sudden there's this change in social status and social positioning for someone. And it happens subtly, but it's pretty profound, both in their most intimate relationship, right? And then how they present themselves into the community. We have opportunities all through our lives. When significant events come, we have rituals to acknowledge those things. At loss, if we don't, how do we re-enter anew as in acknowledging this change? I talk about this in my book, When We Must Say Farewell, in the connecting section quite a bit. And I talk about watching lots of widows through the years and widowers, but the uh, this notion of physically being present with their loved one, the deceased loved one, you know, they touch them. And those hands that that used to be full and strong are now arthritic and bony, right? And they don't respond to her touch. She kisses him on the the cheek and and that cheek that used to be full and and square jawed is now, you can see, somewhat emaciated. And then she touches what's left of his hair, right? And, and she goes through this process and it's attending to, it's a loving, it's a, it's a nurturing and, and the recipient is her, mm, right? Yeah. It's the recipient is her. He feels nothing, yes. right? Yes. And, and she turns and she sees her children and her grandchildren, all who know a little bit about who he was, but not everything. And as the family concludes sort of their family time together, and they move into a gathering with a larger group of people. She has people maybe from a, a social organization who knew him, a part of him, and a people from this organization or this career or that, all who knew a part of him. But then in, her maid of honor walks into the room and she remembers when that coat used to fit mm-hmm. and those shoulders were built and how strong he was and how full his hair was. And he, she remembers the delight of the first dance that he took her to that she couldn't sleep the next night before. She remembers all of those things. Mm-hmm. And so when they meet in the middle of the room to give a hug, they don't have to talk. Yeah. They just have to give each other a hug. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if it's been five years or 25 years since they've seen each other. 
those memories and that support is powerful. And so when I talk about the power of gathering and connecting with people, it is so nurturing to the soul because it helps us usher ourselves into the future, even as we are dealing with our loss in the present and pondering the life that was lived in our past. Wow. Yeah, that's well put. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So this gathering, there are so many layers to that and, right. and to complete the puzzle, complete the picture as, as much as possible with all those relationships for the people who are still left. I know one time you said your death is not your own. Right. And that has stuck with me so strongly. You I know, know somebody that should hear that mm. <laughs> right now. If I could tell every man I know one thing mm. about their funeral plans is it's not about you and what you want. Mm. It is about what those you love need. That's yeah. just the generosity in that, you know, the kindness in that. I mean, it's obvious to me. Mm hmm. I almost called the book, Your Death Doesn't Belong to You. <laughs> uh, but then your publishers at, uh, <laughs> at the marketing department <laughs> exactly <laughs> call it top five ways to do something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here's the thing, and this is probably um, why this work means so much to me. And, and I had a developmental psychology professor once say, and, and this is out of my league, but I'll just once say that he thought most non-organic forms of mental illness originated from unresolved grief. Hmm. I think that, I really think it's at the heart of resentments, at least. Hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Somebody hurt you and you don't know how to grieve it. And so you respond with hatred and anger and wish to punish. Yeah, I have to think about that one. That's good. That's good. And from a psychosocial dynamic, Marty, you would know that the attitude that is pushed at me in the arrangement room is the defense that someone has put up in their inability to properly manage grief. Yeah, hello. And, and that's probably the hardest arrangements for me because I can't help them get the help they need. And you're telling us, right. And you're telling us it's because they won't surrender to the reality and feel that sorrow. Is that exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yes. But what motivates me is, that I get a chance because death is one of the few times when the culture stops and says what really matters, mm -hmm. right? And so we have a chance to help people deal. If we can teach them to deal with the loss of a loved one, they'll apply those truths in other areas of their life, right? And so we get a little window of opportunity where we might be able to teach them something that will help them not only in the moment, but down the road as they continue to process other areas of life and what they learn from. And that's where grief is to me is incredibly transformational. So maybe we call it uh, the shepherd and the shrink and the Sherpa. You're guiding <laughs> them through some really dangerous or, uh, you know, and promising peaks. Perfect. I'll take right. that. All right. <laughs> Final question that you have, Marty, for Carl or... Carl, a parting shot that, that you would give that would really help our listeners help somebody. Um, shoot, Carl. I'm going to share a story first, because the number one question people have after I say what it is I'm going to say, that's a teaser, isn't it? Yeah. Um, In the business, we call that a teaser. <laughs> is how much time is too much time to pass in order to call somebody, right? So I want you to know that the guy that I was telling you about earlier 
um, who was the funeral director, the uncle. I've kept in contact with him through the years. And I was going to go over and have lunch with him because I included a section about him in, in the book that I wrote. And I wanted to get his permission, number one, and number two, uh, to share it with him a little bit. And I knew he'd be fine with it. But what I'm not sharing with you is that um, his 12-year-old daughter had been killed in a tragic accident while the family was on vacation, actually when I was dating his niece. And I was participant in the funeral and was the third car in the funeral procession. Um, this guy was so well thought of that when you drove through town for the funeral procession, people came out on the streets to uh, witness the procession it for his 12-year-old. Anyway, so we're 30-some years later, and I'm going to go over and have a, a breakfast with him. And I sit down with him, and I say, hey, I just wanted you to know I was thinking about Kimberly today on the way over here. And you remember how she used to boom, 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 boom. And he got these huge crocodile tears. And I said, you know, in the moment, I'm thinking, stupid, 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 right? And I said, I, I'm sorry, I, did, I didn't mean to upset you. And he said, no. He said, uh, I can't tell you how wonderful it is to know people still remember her. Oh, yeah. And so the advice, the word I would give you is, it's never too late to pick up the phone and share a memory or a thought, to share a story. Mm -hmm. um, if it's been two years and you feel like, or it's been COVID and there was no service and you, it's been a year and you haven't seen the person, pick up the phone, give them a call, tell them you love them, tell them you've been thinking about them and share a memory of their loved one. It'll be great medicine for their souls. Mm -hmm. I can't improve on that with a question. <laughs> to use the person's name is such good medicine. Yeah, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Wow. And we have that opportunity to come alongside people and to say, I'm so sorry. How did it happen? And how are you? Wow. For people who are interested in more or in helping their family who are, you know, are still around or anything, you have a number of resources, but I would love for you to share with the listeners what resources there are in addition to the several locations of Bork Jennings? Well, you know, the first thing I would tell you is we obviously have a training company that we train people both inside and outside of our industry on our model because it helps people. One of the first emails I ever received from somebody read my read my book was a, a nurse, an RN in an emergency room that was dealing with death all the time. And she said, really, really helped me understand how to apply and what to do and what people were facing. What's the name of the book and where can they get it? It's When We Must Say Farewell and it's available on Amazon. And it's also available as a Kindle relative to its access. The second piece of what we're doing right now is something called My Funeral Friend. And it's really a consultative relationship with people that it's, it's, we don't provide services, but it allows us to expand our the influence of our model without having to be a part of the delivery side of it for people. In other words, to help them make the best decisions they can make by giving them the best of information available to help themselves and their family. And that's myfuneralfriend.com. Um, and that's just getting underway and, and uh, really been encouraged by that response. As far as the uh, other resources, we're always available locally through the funeral homes to come in and do uh, community education programs. We've done this 
for a number of churches and a number of church staffs. Shockingly, it appears that clergies don't have training in the bedside manner, I should say, uh, in the immediate period after death, similar to what we had in mortuary school, this big, huge hole in the thing. And so we're glad to be able to do that as, as the opportunity presents itself as well. So thank wow. you. Thank you so much, Carl. There's a lot to chew on here. And, and it's really something that, like it or not, thinking about death does not take away meaning to life. As you guys have said, it really adds to it. Not because we think we got to get it all in before we die, but simply because it, it's a, a clarifying, catalyzing kind of a, a thing to remember there's a bigger story going on that we are a part of. That's, that's part of the Christian worldview to think about it like that. So, uh, Carl, thank you so much. Well, and uh, would love to close us in prayer. God, thank you so much that you are God over our lives and you are still God after we die. Um, we get so caught up in the immediate. We get so caught up in our feelings and emotions and the news and, and everything going on that we lose sight of the bigger picture of, of life, the bigger picture of the joy that is available to us, the bigger picture of how we can come alongside and help one another through things. And especially when it comes to these major losses of loved ones, of family members, of, of life. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be servants, to be equipped, to be friends, to be those who care and those who follow through. God, help us to be courageous as we seek to come alongside our friends who are losing people. For one reason or another, Lord, uh, that doesn't matter. But what matters is that you have given us people like Carl to help break things down for us and who, who share their experience and their insight because they want to help people. So we pray a blessing on Carl, on Bork Jennings and all that they're doing and ask that you would go with us as we go from here. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 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 If you like what you're hearing, join us at Patreon. You can talk to us personally there get cool merchandise and exclusive video content and more. Just go to patreon.com and search for the Shepherd and the Shrink podcast. You can get involved for as little as $1 a month. Thanks for listening to the Shepherd and the Shrink podcast. You can check out the show notes from this episode, get free resources, discover more about our work, and all the ways to subscribe so you never miss an episode of the show head over to drmartinfletcher.com.